Chapter 16, Babylon the Great. Born in Devonshire, England, to wealthy parents, Melody was the youngest of three. Winston was six years older than Marcia, and Melody three years younger than Marcia. At nine years Winston's junior, she was truly the baby of the family. <clears throat> Melody's father, Donovan Winston McIlvany III, was the proud inheritor of the family tradition and a considerable fortune. Serving in the army in his youth, he had taken had taken him all across Europe and Africa. His campaign had taken him into the tiny African country of Rhodesia, where he fell in love with the vast open spaces and arid tropic beauty. When, on the first day out of the veldt, the bushlands, he had kicked up a gold nugget the size of his thumb, and he knew that he had discovered heaven. He returned home so much of what he owned, bundled his family onto a streamer, steamer, and journeyed to their new home in south-central Africa. Melody still remembered the two-month trek across two oceans, two continents, and three nations to arrive there. He had served in the military when the little country had been a British commonwealth that was a thriving economy. Uh, that was thriving economically, mineralogically wealthy, and politically stable. A veritable grab bag of opportunities. <clears throat> Donovan had moved his family to Rhodesia with a plan of mining gold. He had purchased a tract of land near Salisbury, staked a claim, purchased mining equipment, hired workers, and refined his first bar of gold by the time Rhodesia split politically with England by declaring independence in 1965. At England's insistence, the United Nations immediately slapped an embargo on the fledgling country. Without the ability to sell it outside of Rhodesia, Donovan's gold became virtually worthless. Even though independence had literally bankrupted Donovan overnight, he s supported his new country's independence, more from a sense of injustice done to Rhodesia than an act of treason against his beloved homeland. In the end, his thinking in the matter made little difference to those who labeled him an outlaw and stripped him of his family titles, ancestral lands, and remaining wealth. Now, besides being broke, he was also stranded in Africa. Not one easily defeated, Donovan had loaded his gold bars into an old truck and taken with him all his feud, food, fuel, and a small, well-armed army to defend it all. He had driven nearly 1,800 miles into neighboring South Africa. Much of the way, there was no roads, no bridges, or signs or post points along the way. <clears throat> he followed his compass and his luck. The journey took weeks. When he finally arrived in South Africa, he sold the gold for enough money to more than justify all his labors. He tarried in Africa, purchasing trucks, equipment, medical supplies, books, musical instruments, furniture, and diamonds. He carefully cultivated new friends, bought loyalties, and secured patronage. He returned home after nearly a year's absence. While he was wild, no, while his wild gamble had been completely successful at salvaging his fortune in their new land, tragedy struck with mindless fury during his absence. Rebels from neighboring Botswana had swept into the poorly defended country, killing, raping, and looting in the long tradition of African tribal warfare. Donovan tragically lost his wife and only son in the raid. Marcia had been raped and then allowed to escape without clothing into her father's fields. Melody, just seven at the time, had been hidden in a wine cupboard by her mother and had watched her family's horrible fate. Had she even whimpered or flinched, she would have certainly shared Marcia's fate. Donovan was inconsolable and could not forget him, forgive himself. After doing all in his power to make sure his family was safe and healing, he had borrowed military equipment from the small Rhodesian army, collected a group of angry settlers, and retaliated by 
tracking the rebels to their homeland and lynching all involved. It wasn't hard to find the guilty ones, for they had smeared themselves with the blood of their victims as a token of bravery. He simply hung every man who smelled of death. He returned a hardened, bitter man and a national hero. At great personal cost to his own soul, Donovan had revenged his family's losses. But healing was still decades away, and forgiveness an eternity away. His little country was immensely grateful, and deeded him 10,000 acres of rich tropical desert in token of its gratitude. The former Brit's new kingdom included some of the greatest mineral wealth on the face of the planet, all of little value. He took the money he had recovered and drilled wells, a thing almost unheard of in that land. His wells brought forth an almost unlimited supply of life-giving water, and he put his vast holdings to the plow. He spent months clearing the land with his own hands. He laughed bitterly many times as he watched softball-sized gold nuggets roll between the red, rich red soil. His new homeland was literally starving. Food was in scarce supply, and without a local economy, it was impossible to buy or sell. Donovan planted vast tracts of wheat, barley, and corn. The indefatigable Englishman traveled to Salisbury and convinced the Rhodesian president, Ian Smith, to print currency. Donovan promised to accept the new currency in exchange for his grains, personal possession, lands, and home. Encouraged by Donovan's confidence in Rhodesia, President Smith borrowed a printing press from South Africa and printed their new money on newsprint. They picked, up, uh, they picked the name of the most stable currency in the world, the U.S. dollar, and named their currency accordingly, hoping a tiny portion of faith in the U.S. dollar would rub off on the Rhodesian dollars. Donovan sold his entire crop for what amounted a basket load loads of paper. This he used to pay his workers and promised to redeem the currency for any crop he grew or item he possessed. He treated the money with respect, bargained with suppliers for better prices, and gave nothing away. His workers took the new money to market and exchanged the paper for scarce goods based on the rich farmer's promises. In time, faith in the currency grew and it became accepted without comment. In the meantime, Donovan had considerable amounts of the paper money. He planted more crops, including tobacco, cotton, soy, tea, and every variety of fruit tree. It seemed as if anything would grow in the red soil. In a matter of a little more than ten years, he had parlayed his investment into great wealth. By this time, South Africa was accepting the Rhodesian dollar, and Donovan traded every slip of paper he possessed for anything of value. He acquired the great stone he eventually gave to Sam as a reward for saving his daughters. Throughout all of this, Melody and Marcia struggled to recover from the horrible experiences of their youth. Their healing began the day <clears throat> they first picked up a violin. They immediately exhibited unusual talent, and Daddy Donovan lavished the finest teachers on them. Soon, however, their talent exceeded the best available in the small backward country, and it was decided that they should travel south to seek better education. It was with great anticipation that the two young women made plans to go away to the great metropolis of, to the south. It was during this happy exodus that Sam had met them on the train as he was leaving Rhodesia following his missionary duties there. He could not have known how terrifying it was for them to once again be surrounded by African raiders. It was also little wonder that Marcia had been paralyzed with fear. She still remembered in far too graphic detail what it was like to be brutalized for sport, not knowing if she would ultimately live or die, but actually preferring the latter. When Sam laid his hands upon Marcia, her fair fear had evaporated as the power of the Holy Ghost bore witness of the truth of his words. She had instantly recognized the internal significance of what had occurred. From that moment on, she searched until she found the true church and had joined with palpable joy. 
Her journey to healing reached a perfect climax when she stepped out of the waters of baptism on her 23rd birthday in Devonshire, England, her ancestral home. When Sam gave Melody her blessing, it was powerful yet hard to interpret. It became evident that for Melody, the journey would be much longer and fraught with peril. The Lord, speaking through Sam, told her of a long quest that would take her to many nations and bring her full circle. The blessing had promised, when you finally find what you seek, you will have returned to this moment and it will bring you joy. Those words were a monument in the halls of a cherished memories. They were sweet confusion that Sam would often remember with wonder, words without meaning yet rich with power. For Melody, these words remained troubling, food for forced forgetfulness and a stony ground that refused to fervent that refused her fervent attempts to plow. Many years would pass before she realized what precious promises awaited their fulfillment in her. The morning following his arrival in Alaska, Sam arose early with his father and Ben. They traveled to the site of their construction project. Jim was good at two things. The first, his greatest love, was farming. However, in Alaska, there was little call for commercial farming. The cost of equipment, labor, fertilizer, and everything else was too high, and food could be trucked and air freighted in much cheaper than it could be raised locally. At one time, the Matasuka Susintna Valley, which held Wasilla in its rich embrace, was the breadbasket of Alaska and raised almost all of its staples. Numerous farmers had that had once been prosperously appointed with large barns, grain silos, and lush fields were all abandoned now, unused, neglected, and tumbling down in some cases. The other thing Jim was good at was the speculative real estate development. He had a sixth sense for a good deal and an artist's eye for a well-designed home. On that morning, Jim, Sam, and Ben pulled up to the partly farmed home framed home that was one of Jim's current construction projects. While not a dramatic as the Mahoy's estate, the setting was beautifully was beautiful, wooded, quiet, and secluded. They unloaded tools and after studying the blueprints briefly began laying out the walls. Ben went right to work, having his father's easy familiarity with tools and building. Sam, on the other hand, had to be shown everything to do. He had never built a home and watched and learned with interest. By the time they stopped for lunch, the outside walls on the upper floor were standing, complete with windows installed. When it was time to go home, they had all the roof trusses, all the roof trusses standing. Sam was amazed at how many muscles he had not used on his mission. Now, after a single day's work, every one of the several hundred of them were sore. Several months later, the home was completed and the new owners were moving in. Jim stopped back and deposited a sizable check and they drove home, exhausted but happy. For the next several days, they worked on their own home, adding sheetrock, installing carpet, and painting the exterior of the house. It was a happy interlude, one performed with loving care. During all this time, Princess wrote letters, made phone calls, and said little of her plans. She was a delight to have around. She almost seemed cheerful always seemed cheerful, willing to help, never too busy uh, to assist, and genuinely pleased to learn new things. She fell in love with fishing and gamely baited hooks, hauled in salmon too large for her to lift, and amid squeals of disgust, cut and cleaned her fish. Sam watched her with growing admiration and wonder. In his eyes, her new name was a label of love and a title of distinction both well-suited to her noble soul. When the package arrived, it was marked with custom stamps and colorful postage. Princess laughed happily as she carried the box to the kitchen table, sensing something important in the offing. <clears throat> the whole family gathered around as she carefully cut the tape and opened the box. Princess grew quiet, almost reverent as she lifted the careful packed 
carefully packed items from the box. Because Sam had been around her father, he immediately recognized each item as she unwrapped and laid them on a velvet cloth she also had drawn from the package. First came a jeweler's loop, lop, I don't know how to pronounce that, and two lenses. Next, she lifted a small but elaborate scale from the parcel. Following this, she set out tweezers of various sizes and handful of other tools. When she finally reached the bottom, she lifted a small leather package, no leather, no larger than a box of wooden kitchen matches. She carefully unzipped the pouch and folded back the lid. Inside was a row of small white envelopes. Princess took the first in the row, placed it flat on the table, and while Without lifting it from the surface, deftly unfolded the edges. Inside was a thin layer of bluish tissue, and lying in the fold of the envelope, three small diamonds. A collective gasp went up from around the table, but Princess did not hear it. She was in the world where she only existed. She clamped the first stone in tweezers and lifted it to the light. Satisfied she could see no flaws, she studied it with the 10x loop and the 20 she studied a color chart for a moment before declaring, This is a good stone. I pure with slight flaws at 10. Nice color. About 1. Good cut. Good edges. A nice stone. What's it worth? Benjamin asked impulsively without looking up. She unfolded the scales, laid the stone in one dish, and placed small weights on the opposite end. The scales were soon balanced. It's a little larger than a third carat, she said. Stones in America are higher priced. I would judge this to be worth about $400 wholesale, nearly double that retail. Wow, Benjamin said enthusiastically. Can I look at it? Sure, Princess said happily. She made sure it was clamped securely in tweezers and showed Ben and everyone else how to look through the loop. <clears throat> you know the loop. Uh, you hold the loop to your eye without moving it. Next, you turn to the light and move the diamond back and forth until it comes into focus. By moving it slightly, you can focus on the surface of the stone or actually inside of the gem. Some internal flaws are only visible once you learn how to focus the loop inside the stone. While they were learning to use the loop, she continued to inventory her gems. In all, she had exactly 50 stones. They were all relatively small and in, sides, and in sizes of greatest demand. She confided to Sam later that their retail value was over $50,000. The next afternoon, she and Sam drove to Anchorage. They were between construction jobs, and Sam happily accepted her request to drive her to a meeting. She was still not comfortable driving on what seemed to her to be the wrong side of the road. All Sam knew of their trip was that she was going to sell some of her diamonds. Princess talked happily about diamonds on the drive to Anchorage. She directed him to an address that was more than a warehouse, more of a warehouse than an office. How she had discovered this place was beyond Sam. On the outside of the building, a small brass plaque held the cryptic name Bloomstein and Noble. There was no indication of what Bloomstein and Noble actually did. Princess introduced herself to the secretary and stated that she had some quality goods to display. The secretary left for a moment and returned to usher them into the back room. The room was well lit with plain white tile floors. In a few minutes, an older gentleman entered the room and introduced himself as Mr. Bloomstein. Mr. Bloomstein was a short, balding man in his 60s with silver-streaked hair and a pencil-thin mustache. He wore a black, pinstripe suit and that looked as if it had been pressed moments before. Princess made no introductions, but simply laid out her wares. Mr. Bloomstein sat at a small table, pulled a loop and tweezers from his breast pocket, and examined several of the stones. Hmm, he said aloud. South African, I see. Good cut, good color, nice clarity, good size. How many do you have? 
I have about 30 carats total, all similar, she told him. Without examining the rest of the stones, he looked her squarely in the eye. Your source? he asked pointedly. My father is a diamond cutter in Johannesburg. These stones came through Danvers to my father and then to me after cutting. How good is your supply? I can bring over as many as you need. At this point, I'm establishing my delivery schedules and will need several months to come to full potential. But beyond that, it's basically unlimited. I see. Very good. I presume you have a sales receipt? I do, she said, and pulled a small certificate from her purse detailing the stones and her right to sell them. The man was satisfied. Price? To begin with, 75% of appraised wholesale by lots, 75, or 85% of wholesale by the piece. The man's eyebrows went up as dollar signs appeared in his eyes. It took him barely a moment to recover his composure. Will you place them on consignment, he asked. Not at that price. For full wholesale, I will place them for 30 days to begin with. In the future, I will be able to extend to the customary 60 days. My apologies, she replied smoothly. Sam was amazed at her professional prof presentation and confident demeanor. Very good. I will give you 75% of wholesale for this lot, the man said. I will have the stones appraised independently and forward you a check. That would be acceptable, she said as she struck out her hand. The man shook it once, looked her in the eye and smiled. Pleasure doing business with you, Miss Polly. Princess Polly, she replied. The man's eyebrows went up slightly, and he bowed formally from the waist. Princess, he said simply, may our association be long and mutually profitable. Thank you, she replied. She left the stones sitting where they were and escorted... Uh, yeah, he left the stones sitting where they were and escorted them to the front door. That's it, Sam asked. No contracts, no receipts, a handshake, and you give him $50,000 worth of stones? He won't cheat me, she said simply. You don't know him from Adam, Sam objected. Yes, I do. He deals in diamonds. There are no dishonest diamond wholesalers. How can that be? Because it's not allowed. You don't understand, but you will. The diamond industry is tightly regulated. It is more closely watched than you can imagine. This sale I have made is already known and approved by Danvers. If not, my father would never have acquired the stones in the first place, and I would have never received them. Selling diamonds is like an exclusive religion. You can only get in if you have a family already inside. And to cheat another diamond merchant would be like cheating family, which is unthinkable. Should it happen, they would be kicked out and never touch another diamond as long as they lived. My diamonds are more secure in his hands than if they were in a bank. Princess walked through the door and Sam held open for her. Sam smiled <clears throat> at him for his thoughtfulness and Sam smiled back. No, she smiled at him for his thoughtfulness and Sam smiled back. Her gratitude was one of the small things he admired about her. She appreciated small kindnesses and smiled easy. He would have opened a hundred-ton door for her to see that brief smile. Sam helped her to the car and got behind the wheel. It seems odd that you first place you stop at you sold all the stones almost without effort. Princess laughed and turned to him for a moment. For a moment, he was lost in her beauty, and somewhere inside of him, a warning bell went off. He mentally shrugged and concentrated on her words. My father suggested I contact this man. I told you, the sub-wholesale diamond trade business is a big family. He knew I was coming before I even set foot in his store. He knew what stones I had and approximately the price he would pay. He was pleased to get them because I am now his primary supplier of stones. Exactly three days later, an envelope came in the mail addressed to Princess Gems. 
Sam read the name and smiled. He knew the name was the creation of Mr. Bloomstein. It said all that he needed to be said. Princess laughed when she read the name and asked if Sam would drive her to the bank. He gladly agreed. One might expect a small city bank to have more have little exposure to international banking, yet when Princess declared her intent to make a deposit into a Swiss account, the bank manager smiled and handed her a deposit form. It was a full sheet of paper. Sam handed she handed Sam the check after endorsing it and filled out the rather lengthy deposit form. He gasped when he read the amount, which was for twenty two thousand dollars. It was the largest amount of money he had ever seen. He felt as if he should be glancing over his shoulder for robbers. Sam was deep in thought when she slid the paper over to him and handed him the pen. What's this, he asked. She pointed to a section of uh, of the form labeled account holder. You signed by the X, she said simply. Why? This is your money, not mine, he objected, noticing the bank manager suppressing a smile. It apparently seems unlikely that anyone would refuse so much money. Do you trust me? Absolutely. Then sign. I'll explain it in time. Until then, I just need you to trust me. Sam twirled the pen in his fingers while she, while he studied her face, which he decided was just as pretty with a frown on it as it was with a smile. He quickly signed the document, and the banker whisked it away. In minutes, they were back in the car. Every few weeks, another package arrived for Princess, and after a while, the family lost interest, and just the two of them sorted through the stones. The first few months, the stones were carefully graded and sorted so that every stone in the batch was similar in size and value. As the quantities became larger, the stones were more varied, until not two were exactly alike. Isn't it dangerous to have that many diamonds here at home in a cardboard box, Sam asked, suddenly wary? That brings me to the next subject. We need an office in a secure building. We also need several safety deposit boxes in different banks. Sooner or later, someone is going to find out we have the stones here and make an attempt to steal them. They will easily succeed with the way we keep them now. Well, I don't see the problem with getting an office. I'll help you find an office tomorrow after work if you like. You may enjoy having your own office anyway, he said. It sounded like fun. You don't quite understand. The office isn't for me, it's for us. I can't handle everything that's going to be taking place. We will need to hire a bookkeeper, arrange for armored car deliveries of stones, all kinds of things. We need to make trips overseas to secure new delivery routes and better prices. I am tempted to go to Asia and purchase colored stones. This is much bigger than I can handle alone. I really need your help, if you'll have me as your partner. Sam was stunned. Since the first small parcel of diamonds had arrived, he had considered this her business. It even bore her name. The idea of working for Princess had never occurred to him, let alone working with her as a partner. It made his head buzz. She took his silence as a rejection, and she turned away from him, busying herself with a stone under a loop. A quick glance at her revealed a glistening tear hovering in her eye. Why are you doing this? Sam asked. What do you mean? She replied without looking away from her stone. Why are you setting up this business and involving me in it? We both know you don't need the money. Your father restored all your assets he took away before your baptism. You have more money than I could ever hope to make in a lifetime. You have your father's inheritance on top of this business. Besides, you know I'm planning to go away to college next spring, and you mentioned going to college too. You put my name on the Swiss bank account without explanation, and now you are involving me in your business? Why are you doing all this? You said several months ago you'd explain it. When the time was right, maybe now would be a good time. Princess turned toward him. A blink sent a tingle, a single tear streaking down her cheek. He reached out and brushed it away. 
and he did so. Sh as he did so, she leaned her face into his fingers, and for a moment he for he found it difficult to breathe. The time isn't right, she said cryptically. Let me ask you something else, then. Are you doing this for yourself or for me? For myself, she replied, smiling and adding, Well, mostly for me. I have another motive, but it's of no consequence right now. And you really need my help? You're not just making that up to be generous or something? Princess turned to him, full in the face. I honestly need your help, and I am trying to be generous. I owe you a lot, but this is not repayment for that. I don't know. I, it's just that I want you to be with me in something I feel is very important. You're not going to tell me why? It was not a question. No, she replied simply. I don't think so. Or, I didn't think so. He realized he was bumping into that part of Princess's personality that was very stubborn. Well, so was he, just on different matters and not nearly to her level. She was a curious combination of generous to a fault, and as stubborn as a rusted, make that welded, hinge. When something was important to her, nothing, that is, no earthly thing, could make her budge. It made Sam chuckle that she could be more headstrong than he was. What are you laughing about, princess? asked suspiciously. That you are more stubborn than I am? Get used to it, she replied cheerfully, but without any attempt at apology. I'll do it, he said, without further delay. Thank you, she replied as if he had given her a great gift. Her smile was so wide that he wondered again what deep plot she was brewing. It was something of great significance to her. He thought it might be sometime, if ever, before he knew what it was. The following afternoon, they found an office above the National Bank of Anchorage, which occupied a new building in the middle of Wasilla. It was easily, no, exactly what she needed. They would have easy access to their safety deposit boxes, and the building was unusually secure. They arranged to have a quality security system installed. Princess paid the lease a year in advance. Their new office consisted of a lobby and three large offices. It was bare except for carpeting. They spent several days in Anchorage arranging for office furniture. Princess insisted that they rent the furniture rather than purchase it. Since he knew she had access to considerable sums of money, it surprised him. However, he considered it pointless to debate the issue. Since he had no idea what her agenda was, he could not guess at her motives for the decisions she made. He decided to simply trust her. Accordingly, Sam took the first office, Princess the second, and the bookkeeper the third. Princess had been involved in the diamond trade since her youth. After her mother's death at age eight, it was her main tie with her father. His life was diamonds, and she made it hers in an instinctual need to connect with him. She showed a genuine aptitude for the business, which her father had recognized, fondly kindled, and encouraged. All of her current wealth stemmed from prior involvement in the trade. Only 22 years old, she already possessed her father's pro prodigious knowledge of the diamond trade. It was precisely six months from their return to America that they purchased tickets to re and returned to South Africa. The whirlwind trip began at Princess's childhood castle and continued on to diamond mines in Germiston, diamond cutting houses in Johannesburg, and finally the diamond works in Africa, West Africa. By the time they returned home, Sam could describe every aspect of a diamond's journey from a mine half a mile beneath the earth's surface to a woman's finger. It was a fascinating, exhausting journey. Of all he learned, of all he saw, of all things made plain to him in this long journey, the greatest of these was that was the preciousness of Princess's soul. 
Over the course of the past year, he had seen her in every condition possible. Happy, sad, excited, terrified, disappointed, fresh, exhausted, healthy, sick, laughing, and weeping. No matter the circumstances, she radiated a noble quality that seemed unassailable. There was no thin veneer, no cheap facade to princess. She was simply a princess, both in name and quality. The plane was four hours out of England, and Princess had fallen asleep beside him. They had flown first class for the express purpose of giving him more legroom. It was just one of a thousand thoughtful things she did for him. He was tired, and his mind and body demanded sleep, but he was too troubled to rest. He tried reading the scriptures, but his eyes passed over the words. His mind did not register their meaning, for his thoughts were upon another puzzle, so pressing it refused to give him peace. It was barely ten days ago that they had walked up to that imposing front door of her father's castle together. As the heavy door groaned open, it was almost as if those first moments played out again when he had first stood there as a missionary. He looked down that vast room and could almost see Dawn walking through it in her swimsuit and gossamer robe. As the evening progressed from laughter through dinner and a small talk, certain words seemed to trigger flashes of memory for Sam, and he would be transported away with a memory of her. He saw her serving tea in her father's study, leading them through the secret passages of the castle, serving them cinnamon rolls and cold milk in the vast kitchen after a missionary discussion. In his mind, he listened again with wonder to the golden answers to their missionary questions and saw the tears stream down her face as she acknowledged for the first time that she knew it was true. By far, Sam's most powerful memory was that eternal moment when he had pronounced the words of divine cleansing and lowered her into the waters of baptism. She had looked at him, her intense blue eyes lovingly fastened to his, only closing as the water rushed over her. As she emerged, her eyes reopened to his as if nothing in eternity could separate them. How he thrilled then to her purity, to the spiritual feast it was to teach and baptize her to the sheer joy of that unity that forever binds a spiritual child with her first teacher. Now nearly a year later, they were once again on a plane headed toward his home, which was now her home. They had spent nearly every intervening day together, either living in his parents' home or working in the same office. Each day had revealed a new side of her inner beauty until he was awed into silence. It was true she was flawed in some ways, but the flaws were like a tiny specks of flint that he had learned to find in an almost perfect diamond. The flaws did much more than signify imperfection. Truly, one great flaw lowered the value but of an otherwise precious stone, but many flaws attested to the fact that this was indeed a, dom- a diamond. A flawless stone did not exist in nature, and any stone without some imperfection was labeled valueless as a cheap laboratory creation. It was not her flaws he constantly saw, but the brilliance of the diamonds surrounding them. Any mortal can put up on a perfect facade for a period of time, and like a laboratory mockery, its sparkle is artificial. There was no facade in Princess, though. Her flaws were naked, visible, and honest. Sam saw her flaws as evidence of the fact that this was her soul, utterly unadorned, in bright light under a 20x lop. It was this and thousand other brilliantly special things that made him love her. However, this was not the puzzle now twisting his soul into knots. What puzzled Sam was that he had come to love her with great intensity, but had not fallen in love with her. He knew it was a distinction worthy of some great philosopher's treatise on 
a poet's-inspired lyrics. It was a distinction smaller than dust, yet greater than the vastness of space. It bound him to her forever, and in the same mighty stroke it separated them for eternity. Still greater than the dilemma was hers, for there was little doubt she was not encumbered by this subtle yet steely distinction. Her every gesture spoke of her love for him in a way he recognized in the deepest, most precious part of his soul. She made every effort to hide it, to treat him as a friend or perhaps a sibling. Manhood had placed the usual brown paper bag over his head in regard to female subtlety, but the message slowly seeped into his heart after countless hours, days, and weeks of exposure to it. Princess loved him. It brought tears to his eyes and anguish to his soul to know that one day he must tell her that he did not love her in a romantic way. He knew it would tear a great hole in her noble heart and simultaneously a hole in his own. Oh, father, he heard himself cry out in the silent anguish of his soul. Thou knowest how I love thee, and how I love to feel thy arms around me. Thou knowest how, in the simplest of my heart, simpleness of my heart, I have longed to be a blessing to thy daughter. O oh, father, how it pains me to know that I must tell thy precious daughter that I can't love her the way she needs and deserves. I have no idea why this is, and I would give all, father, to spare her that hurt. Father, I... A stirring next to him interrupted his prayer, and he turned to watch Princess lean over until her head rested on his shoulder. Long blonde hair spilled over his shoulder, and a smile played briefly across her lips. It was almost more than he could stand. His heart cried out in a love for her, yet the brick wall in his heart refused her entrance any further. A flash of pure truth suddenly penetrated Sam's thoughts as clearly as a beam of light through total blackness. He saw the wall her love had hit, and recognized for the first time that he had constructed it. It was not a fixture of his nature, but a construct alien to the landscape of his soul. Every way Sam looked at it, he saw his handiwork, his thinking, and his peculiar craftsmanship. Almost with a palpable feel of stone on his fingers, he picked up a brick and looked at it from every side. It was made of cold resolve. It was the color of his mission and the texture of the mission rules. It was every female on his mission whose feminine call had gone unanswered. Suddenly, with great relief, he mentally tossed the brick away. It had outlived its purpose. He examined another and saw it was made of the same stone as Princess's castle home. From the first time he had seen her, it was the, the color of her swimsuit and the softness of her skin. On impulse, he brought it to his nose and smelled the sweetness of her perfume, as the moment of the big door wafted it to his nose. He knew why he had placed this brick on the wall and tossed it aside as well. Brick after brick he examined in his mind. He found dozens of them. He found dozens of them had the texture of the missionary lesson guide. Each was the color of a different piece of clothing she had worn. He pulled down another one for every missionary lesson he had taught her, and one for every time he had forced himself to see inside her soul and not dwell on her physical beauty. He was surprised to find many bricks the color of pine trees and the texture of rough-hewn logs. They had crystal for ends and gold for corners. He lifted one to his ear and hear, heard her voice singing those angelic evening performances in Switzerland. He found one for every time he had looked at her, loved her, and remembered who she was and who he was. He found one with velvet sides textured like silken bedsheets, the color of her hair as it spilled across the pillow beside him. It smelled of expensive soap and freshly scrubbed skin. He turned it over in his hands and savored its softness and beauty. He rejoiced that he had made it a part of his brick wall, and then with joy he mentally tossed it aside and watched it vanish into non-existence. 
Dozens of bricks were made of Alaskan birchwood, and the color of her bathrobe and the texture of her skin one smelled of shampoo and swirling steam from a hot bath. Dozens of them had been placed into the wall in his father's home, each a little different, but each adding to the thickness of the wall keeping her out. One was slick like por porcelain, the smell of chlorine, moist to the touch, the color of her swimsuit atop the pinkness of her skin. Each of these he examined with care, savored the memory, and remembered their function, valued their purpose, and then discarded them. At length, no wall stood, no barrier prohibited her. He looked around, searching, hoping, and waiting for her to, her love to try the wall again. He rejoiced that now it could pass, now it was free. No, in reality, now he was free. The contemplation of the happy moment when she came and found the wall gone thrilled him, and he laughed. The sound of his own voice delighted him, and he laughed again. Something moved against his shoulder, and that peculiar sensation of sudden awakening surrounded him. He hadn't realized he had fallen asleep. He blinked open his eyes to see her sleepy face pulled in a puzzled smile. You were laughing in your sleep, she said, and chuckled softly at the memory. I was dreaming, I guess, he explained, and found his eyes drinking in her beauty in a way he had never allowed before. She pushed herself away from him, as if she had been trying to focus on something too close. Her smile turned to happy puzzlement. She blushed. Why are you looking at me that way, she demanded, happy yet confused. Don't you recognize this look on someone's face? No, she responded playfully. Should I? You'd better get used to it. Why? It's the look of love, princess. It means that I have loved you from the first moment I saw you, and that my life will never be complete unless you're part of it. Sam! Princess stammered. She fumbled nervously with her hands, her eyes falling from his face to her hands. I think you're still asleep, she finally managed to say. Then I wish to never awaken. If this is a dream, let me dream it through eternity. He reached out to her, took her hand, and brought it to his, his lips. Twin tears streaked down her cheeks. Don't tease me, I couldn't stand it if... Dawn. His voice softened, and he touched her cheek lovingly. Princess, I love you. I think I've always loved you. Before this world began, I loved you, and as long as the smallest speck of dust exists anywhere in all of eternity, my love for you will be what it's made of. This is so cheesy. Okay. His eyes clouded with tears, and his hands trembled. Tears fell on her hand as he pressed each finger to his lips and kissed it tenderly. I know this is unexpected, he continued, and I know we have talked of little other than the gospel and diamonds, but I will burst if I wait another second. Princess, he paused to regain control of his voice. Princess, will you stay with me for the rest of eternity? Will you make my journey through this dismal world meaningful and marry me? The sound that came from her lips was at once a cry for joy, a laugh of sweetness, and the sound of bitterness escaping. She looked at him, her face wet with tears, her lips moving, trying to say the right words, but they would not come. She laid her face against his chest and wept. At first, they were tears of happiness and then tears of long-held fear that had suddenly, unexpectedly been released. He held her gently against his chest, his cheek on her head as she cried until only sweetness remained. Finally, she raised her head and rubbed away tears with both hands. She smiled and tried to speak, but her mood her mouth was again overcome with emotion. When she did speak, it was so small, he nearly had to read her lips. Yes, she whispered, and with great happiness she added, Yes, a thousand times, yes, an eternity filled with him. My answer has always been yes. I just feel like I have been waiting a million years for you to ask me the right question. Her voice was soft and breathless. 
Princess's face was close. Sam placed his hand on her cheek. She turned her face and kissed him, his palm. Perhaps, he said, gazing into her eyes with an intensity that was both new and intoxicating. Perhaps, if one counts the pre-mortal world, it has been that long. Since you have waited so long, do you mind if I ask you again? She shook her head wordlessly, a beautiful smile glowing on her face. How like an angel she seemed to him at that moment. Sam swallowed hard, his heart pounding. Nearly beyond control, he slipped out of his seat, kneeling in the aisle, holding both her hands in his. Princess, will you make me the happiest man among all of God's creations and marry me? Oh, yes, she cried, I will, and fell into his arms. Without explanation, without warning, without regard for the sanctity of what had just happened, a passenger nearby began to clap, and then another and another. As seconds turned into minutes and whispers into shouts, the entire plane erupted into applause. People cheered, some of them whistled, many laughed, and a few cried. Princess and her beloved prince nestled down into their seats, oblivious to anything but one another and the miracle of perfect love.